Everyone had been transfixed with horror at the news of the deadly heatwave in India. There were sure to be immediate ramifications. Now the first of these had come. You must have heard that the Indian government is beginning a solar radiation management action. Our geoengineering people are saying that if they do it as planned, it will equate to about the same as the Pinatuba volcanic eruption of 1991. That lowered global temperature by about a degree Fahrenheit for a year or two. That was from the sulfur dioxide in the ash cloud that the volcano shot into the stratosphere. It will take the Indians several months to replicate that boost of sulfur dioxide, our people say. But the agreement, Mary said, you know what it says, no atmospheric interventions without consultation and agreement. We are breaking the agreement, Chandra said flatly, but no one knows what the effects will be. They will be like Pinatubo, which is what we need. You can't be sure that there won't be other effects. Mary, Chandra exclaimed, stop it right now. Here's what we are sure of in India. Millions of people have just died. So we are taking matters into our own hands. We'll lower global temperatures for a few years. Everyone will benefit. And perhaps we'll dodge another massacre like this one. You just heard an excerpt from chapter four of Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. This is Climate Futures at Harvard, a podcast talking to activists, experts, and Harvard professors about big ideas, big solutions to climate change, social, technical, and economic. This season, we're following along with Kim Stanley Robinson's science fiction novel, Ministry for the Future. One of the major, major plot points in this book is a deadly heat wave in India that leads the Indian government to pursue solar geoengineering, uh, specifically injecting sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, as we just heard in that passage. And today, we're very, very lucky to have one of the world's foremost thinkers on solar engineering, David Keith, who is Gordon McKay Professor of Applied Physics at Harvard. Uh, he's an engineer, he's a scientist, he's a professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School as well, uh, and he's really one of the main advocates for researching the possibilities of solar engineering, climate engineering more broadly, and technical solutions to climate change. But he's also really, really thoughtful, as you'll see today, uh, about the policy implications and the ethical and the social implications of the ideas he's putting forward. So without further ado, Professor Keith, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, my name is David Keith. I'm a professor at Harvard. I had a philosophy undergrad and I did experimental physics. My PhD was physics. And uh, I started to do some of this stuff in about 89 while I was a graduate student. And actually some of the first work I did was on solar geoengineering. So I guess I've been working on it forever. But for most of that time, certainly for most of the 90s and early 2000s, it was a small fraction of what I did. And you've written a very accessible book called A Case for Climate Engineering, in which you explain the idea of solar engineering and you go into the kind of pros and cons, the ethical questions that are at stake here. Uh, but one thing that you're very careful to say in your book is that the word geoengineering is actually a very broad word and it could refer to quite a few different things. And in this episode, we're really focused on specifically solar engineering or to be even more technical, stratospheric sulfur injection. The way I think about it is there are broadly four things we can do about climate. We can cut emissions, we can remove carbon from the atmosphere, which you could call carbon geoengineering, and some people do. You can um, do this, so what I call solar geoengineering, but you could call it solar reflectivity intervention, or you could call it capitalist climate fucking. You can really call it what you want, but the point is it's a thing, and it's pretty different from carbon removal. Not to say one's better or not, they're just different. And then there's local adaptation measures. So to me, there's those four things, and those are really four pretty distinct things. And we'll hear later on how those four things can work in tandem or be combined as, as climate responses. Um, but first, I'll clear up what solar engineering is by reading the very first paragraph of your book, which 
says, it is possible to cool the planet by injecting reflective particles of sulfuric acid into the upper atmosphere, where they would scatter a tiny fraction of incoming sunlight back to space, creating a thin sunshade for the ground beneath. To say that it's possible understates the case. It is cheap and technically easy. The specialized aircraft and dispersal systems required to get started could be deployed in a few years for the price of a Hollywood blockbuster. Is that still how you would explain the idea? I mean, the underlying idea of, of, of solar geoengineering is simply to make the Earth a little bit more reflective, which could reduce some of the uh, dangers of accumulated carbon dioxide that, that cause climate change. So reduce some of the climate change for a given amount of accumulated carbon dioxide. And one of the ways to do solar uh, geoengineering is to put reflective aerosols in the stratosphere. Aerosols are just little uh, droplets or dust particles. And one of the dust particles or droplets we know the most about is sulfuric acid. So there are a whole lot of risks and reasons to not do this, which I'm sure the listener is probably thinking about right now. But let's just start this discussion off by making it really clear what the benefits are. Why are we even considering this idea, which might seem so strange or so instinctively difficult for many of us to get our heads around? One thing that you say in your book that really convinced me was, quote, crop losses, heat stress and flooding are the impacts of climate change that are likely to fall most harshly on the world's poorest. The moderate amounts of geoengineering in this slow ramp scenario are likely to reduce each of these impacts over the next half century, and so it will benefit the poor and politically disadvantaged who are most vulnerable to rapid environmental change. As we see in the Kim Stanley Robinson book, solar geoengineering is imagined as being used to combat a deadly heat wave in India. Can you talk a little bit about those benefits? How? What are the benefits of geoengineering, and has your view on this changed since you wrote that? that paragraph. You know, there are lots of things we think about as climate hazards. So there's sea level rise, flooding people, there's extreme storms, there's damage to crops. But in fact, it might well be, uh, this has nothing to do with solar geo, that um, it increasingly seems likely that the dominant human impact is really through heat, reducing people's productivity, reducing their ability to learn and killing them. If you measure, say, like the total number of deaths you expect in 2050 from climate change, I think it's likely that the direct heat deaths completely swamp storm deaths and uh, deaths from sea level rise may those other effects. So actually reducing heat, especially reducing peak temperatures, if solar geomachering does that well, and there is actually people haven't looked at that very much, you know, would that pretty directly be useful in that sense. Can you put a number estimate on potential lives saved with solar geoengineering? It depends a lot on what your scenario is for how warm it's getting. Under a world that was, say, two degrees centigrade, you're talking about increases in all-cause mortality that are more than a tenth of a percent. Gives you a sense of that's like, one way to think about it is like right now, air pollution kills of order six million people a year. So air pollution is like a COVID every year globally, because COVID's really killed 10 million. So I think you should think about air pollution now is like that. And climate, if we didn't do much to mitigate late this century, is being sort of 10 times worse than that. And another striking thing you say in your book is that solar geoengineering was cheap and relatively easy to do, at least for governments. Can you elaborate on the capital cost of geoengineering? Well, it depends how much you want to inject. And I think in these discussions, it's really not very useful to say not that expensive. You have to have some numbers. So I think if you wanted to um, inject enough material sulfur to cool the earth sort of very roughly uh, half a degree centigrade, uh, I would think the annual 
operating costs would be somewhere in very round numbers between say a few billion dollars and a few tens of billions of dollars per year. But the capital cost to build that up would be higher because you have to actually build the aircraft. So first of all, how much sulfur are we talking? And second, in Kim Stanley Robinson, we have this injection being done for a few years and then stopped. Is that a probable scenario or would we practically have to keep injecting sulfur once we started? The order of magnitude is a million tons of sulfur per year. Um, I think it would be bad public policy to do a large amount for a short amount of time because you'd see sharp transients and there are lots of reasons we believe that would make a lot of unequal climate impacts. So I think it's a poor idea, but there's no have to. And and if you're asking me to predict what will happen, I just don't think I have any idea. I think we're getting a little bit into those tricky governance questions here, but uh, we've I think managed to cover what the real benefits of this are. So one huge thing that solar engineering could do is an equity thing. It could decrease the impact on the most vulnerable. Well, nobody owns the idea. So that's what motivates me, or it's one of the main things that motivates me. But people have all sorts of ideas, and other people will say that this is purely a way for um, the rich to avoid their duties to the poor or to preserve oil company stocks. Nobody owns what an idea is for. Um, you know, you're recording this on a computer. What's that computer for? Is it a mechanism for uh, Apple to steal your privacy? Is it, you know, what kind of tool is it? There's no, there's nobody owns a simple definition of what it is. Well, I think that takes us nicely into arguments against sword engineering. And one of the ones that you just mentioned is the idea that somehow oil companies are benefiting from this. Somehow uh, solar engineering is an excuse to not mitigate carbon or not reduce carbon emissions quickly. I think people really don't spell out that scenario in a serious way. Are the oil companies actually deploying geoengineering and then arguing that that means they can keep producing? But oil companies, I mean, they lobby and they lobby by lying. But in the end, they produce what people buy. I think this just like misunderstands the way the system works. So would oil companies and other people who are very dependent on oil profits lobby for slower emissions reductions if there was solar geoengineering? Yeah, they sure might. And it probably doesn't make much difference who's doing the solar geoengineering. But let's quickly back it up and talk about, I mean, I'm sure there are also physical risks. There are a whole bunch of risks that come from the individual way you're doing it. So risks of damaging the ozone layer, risks of altering the chemistry of the upper stratosphere, upper troposphere, uh, risks of um, these aerosols getting down to the surface and adding to the aerosol burden that's so harmful to people's health, uh, risks of, of ecosystem change from diffuse light. There's a you know a very very long list. Um, and then there's a sort of the fundamental climate risk, which is is the risk of what I would call exacerbation, the risk that, that, that doing this makes in some places the climate worse, makes it farther from pre-industrial. And another thing you say in your book about geoengineering that's tricky is that we don't necessarily know how we'll see the effects of geoengineering. We don't necessarily know if we'll know if it's working until decades after we start the program. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it depends how much. But yes, if you're doing it in the ways that I and many other people have advocated, where it would ramp up slowly, and you were ramping it up, say, for 20 years, ramping it up to in these watts per square meter units, something like a half a watt per square meter or something, yes, it would not be obvious. You certainly couldn't detect by any easy way on the ground that this was happening. Well, you'd hope to see a reduction in many of the 
key climate hazards relative to the world where this hadn't happened. So reduction in climate hazards like peak precipitation or um, peak temperatures or sea level rise, for example. And some will point out that there's just some extent to which we don't know what this kind of solar engineering will do. And maybe that presents a kind of global worldwide risk that is just too big for us to ever take it on. How would you respond to that? Well, so, that, so that's certainly a true statement. We can't account for all the risks. So what are the untouchable things? I, I think the answer is the fact that we can't account for all the risks is trivially true. We all know it. It, it does seem that the risks of, 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 of relatively, I think, I think the answer is the risks of geoengineering that was done with some uh, attempted benevolence, which doesn't mean a perfect answer, but it means you're trying to achieve a good, do seem to be pretty small compared to their benefits from what we know now. I think the same could actually be said of nuclear power, but I think the big difference is that nuclear power can clearly be used for malevolent ends in all sorts of ways, most obviously nuclear weapons. And I think there is a strong argument. I actually, in the end, would vote for nuclear power in general, but there's a strong argument to say no matter how effective reactors could be at producing a lot of clean energy in a relatively small space with a small land footprint, having a lot of reactors makes it easier to have weapons. And in a world with conflict, we want to have less weapons. So I think that's an argument I could really buy. And that, I think, doesn't carry over to solar geosharing because so far, we've really been unable to find any kind of useful ways to weaponize it in a way that there are very obviously useful ways to weaponize um, nuclear power. One major, major reason people oppose geoengineering as well is the possibility that it could disrupt the monsoon or otherwise have negative effects on rainfall, which of course would be really, really disastrous for farmers, particularly in India, in South Asia, and other places that rely on the monsoon. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, you claim in this book that we're looking at something of a trade-off between precipitation and temperature. Yeah, but it turns out that precipitation difference is really not that important. I think too many early papers on solar geo focused on precip, but the, the climate hazards that humans most feel are change in temperature extreme temperature, change in extreme precip, like the maximum amount of five days that drives flooding, and then change in precip minus evaporation, which drives water availability. The point is if, let's say, extreme precip didn't change, and precip goes down by 50%, and or that's a big number, but let's say it goes down 50%, and evaporation also goes down by 50%, then water availability hasn't really changed. And so it's, there's, there's not saying there's no impacts, but it's not that big an impact. And it's not even obvious which direction the impact is. Precip is not the best variable to look at um, people use it in climate conventionally because they assume that precip and evaporation follow a standard curve, but they don't if you're doing solar geoengineering, so it's therefore a less useful measure. I think the right underlying things that humans and ecosystems will be most responsive to are extreme precip and what we call precip minus evaporation or water availability. So now we've talked about that risk element, I'd like to delve into a little bit of the psychology. Why do people react so strongly sometimes to this idea of geoengineering? Why are people so opposed to it if it seems like it will have benefits and the risk will be basically controllable or can at least be researched? I think there's a couple strains. I think one of the cores of it is really easy to understand. There's a community of people of whom, in many respects, I feel I'm one, who spent big chunks of their careers fighting to get action on climate. And it's been really painful and slow. We, we've been fighting against entrenched power that has resisted emissions cuts. And if you're somebody, say, the big environmental or civil society group who spent your career doing that, you may internally think, well, I agree solar geometry might make sense someday. Uh, maybe I even agree with a lot of things that some nutjob like David Keith says, but I really don't want to introduce to debate now because I feel it will make it harder for me to get the next step along the road, the next little increment of emissions cuts. And 
I feel that is, in some sense, the underlying thing. I hear that a lot, and I think it's a common view. And I think that's a view that kind of centers from the environmental left that's trying to get action on emissions cuts. I think there's another sort of uh, set of thinking, which is uh, anti-globalization set of thinking that cuts to the right or left. And maybe you see more on the right. This is speculative, but there's some polling data. But there's, you know, obviously a set of beliefs that really doesn't like global power, period. Um, and solar geoengineering inherently demands a kind of global collaboration and power. And so for that reason, people from that point of view don't like it. And then there's um, people from what I would call a kind of romantic environmental view who regard technology generally as the wrong way to solve environmental problems. And um, I think that they generally seem to view that, that, that it's better to use less science and technology is the pathway to, to solving environmental problems. And I believe that view is actually in the current world profoundly unenvironmental. I believe it, it lacks a kind of serious engagement with the facts that we find ourselves now on a planet with um, you know, roughly 7 billion people, stepping back from some of the technologies we have would likely increase the weight on the environment a lot. So technologies have reduced footprints per unit of human activity substantially. And, you know, the most obvious one, in some ways people would argue the first kind of geoengineering is, is artificial nitrogen fertilizers. So I think people who say this are, they're hearkening back to some earlier ideal that is not necessarily what they imagine anyway, since I think, in fact, it is not correct that ancient peoples lived in balance with nature anyway. And it also is unrealistic about the consequences of going backwards. I think that's broadly true. I think what I can say clearly, what I want, is I want us to have less footprint on nature. I want humans to leave more land relatively untouched for nature. I want the climate to be more like it was. Uh, and I want humans to be treated justly. Those are things I want. Um, in some cases, that definitely means using less technology. Like, I'd be very happy if we don't develop uh, supersonic rich people's aircraft. And there's lots of things I think we could easily not do. <laughs> Uh, but but the idea that that generally means living more like in a kind of lower tech way, I think, is not compatible with the population we've got. So I think it's on a really brutal level. If you're talking about doing that, you're talking about reducing the population dramatically. And that means killing people. So what would you say the overall takeaway is risk-wise? What we can say with confidence is geoengineering will never work perfectly. It'll always have lots of unknowns that we don't know even after we've done it. And it will um, never you know, benefit every place for sure. That's also true of most public policies we do for almost anything. Quite right. And that's a good reminder. Uh, and a reminder for listeners, we're talking to Professor David Keith about solar geoengineering. This is Climate Futures. Um, and next, we're going to pivot to uh, talking about a kind of governance question. I think this would lead most of us to a very natural question, which is, given the importance of politics generally in mitigating climate disasters, and I think Mike Davis's book, Late Victorian Holocaust, is a very, very illuminating description of the tragedy that can happen uh, when social structures to prevent drought are destroyed and when governments don't have people's best interests in mind. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this question of alternatives. Are there other ways besides solar engineering to prevent extreme heat death to get some of the advantages that we've been talking about while avoiding the risks? Oh, sure, there are other ways. I think, I think it's a, a key thing. People always want to assert that they have some magic solution. And this is purely represents people's self-view of what their solution is. So there are lots of other ways. I mean, taking CO2 out of the air obviously can um, uh, reduce warming. 
I think it's inherently slower, but it can. And then all these local adaptive issues, it measures, you know, more access to air conditioning, social measures that anticipate heat waves and get people out of the hottest buildings or into shelters. I think there's lots of, a whole network of things you could do to reduce uh, these risks. If you're asking, would it be good policy to do geoengineering and do nothing else to manage heat? I would say no. <laughs> if you're asking, if there was a period where, imagine some scenario where it's gradually getting hotter, where there presumably are measures, not good enough, but measures to reduce local adaptation, uh, to, to improve local adaptation, reduce sensitivity to extreme heat. And then you get, you know, a big um, you know, heat wave that kills uh, 20 million people or whatever it was in, in Kim Stanley Robinson's book. Um, I think it is objectively true that at that point, if you wanted to reduce the risks substantially in, say, five years, it might well be that solar geoengineering was one of the most effective ways to do that. I think that's a very measured and uh, useful perspective. I think that it's also worth noting here that solar engineering can't solve everything. I mean, no matter what, it has to be employed with alternatives. For example, you say in your book, it can't stop ocean acidification. Uh, it can, of course, affect changes in precipitation, changes in temperature, and maybe even could help us with the problem of loss of sea ice. Uh, but we have to consider it along with the broad problem of climate governance of how we're going to avoid disaster. And I think it would be really interesting now to hear some of your thoughts about governance, about how this geoengineering idea is going to be managed with the kind of global decision making they were making today. Is it possible for there to be a kind of global democratic consensus about geoengineering, whether to do it or not do it or research it or not research it? We're not making globally democratic decisions about essentially anything. Uh, we're not making them about nuclear weapons or vaccines or distribution of capital flows or patent rights <laughs> or internet. Uh, so I think to, to take one thing and say, well, we can't do this unless we have this perfect democratic mechanism strikes me is effectively equivalent to saying, I don't want this to be done. So when I hear somebody say, we can't do geoengineering unless we have a global democratic process, what I hear is, I personally have the view this should never be done. To be clear, if I hear somebody talk seriously about the ways that we might improve democratic decision-making about these hard topics, then I hear that as something sincere. If you admit that this is a problem for a whole range of topics and it's not clear, there's some ways in which geoengineering is harder and some ways in which it's not. In Robinson's book, we have one country making a unilateral decision to do geoengineering, and we see in the book why this is maybe justifiable or understandable, but uh, how likely do you think that is to happen? And do you think it would be an acceptable way of making decisions? I think actually, I think it's unlikely to be what happens, and here's why. Suppose that you're in the leadership of some major country that wants to do it. So let's take the India situation in Kemp's Robinson's book. You've just suffered this heat wave. You, for reasons that let's assume for the second are not correct, they're actually sensible reasons representing your population while you want to move ahead very quickly and deploy. You might technically be able to do it unilaterally, but as a matter of real politique, would you? I think not. I think in fact what you would do is reach out to a number of different countries thinking hard about alliances and look to form an alliance where other countries will go along with you because you can rationally anticipate the reactions of other countries that if you do it in a totally non-unilateral um, way without any consultation, it's quite likely or possible that maybe some very large Large countries would two days later say we forbid it, and if they're if it was China and the and the U.S., you'd more or less have to comply or risk nuclear war. So what would you like to see? I'd like to see an enabling treaty that didn't either forbid or mandate solar geoengineering, but provided some structure for nations to talk about what should happen. I want to go into 
some ground here that I don't necessarily go into in these interviews, uh, which is a kind of more broad existential question. And I, I sometimes when I am myself thinking about climate change, I wonder if the international institutions, the status quo that we're so used to and we put so much faith in as the manager of the climate crisis might not be as stable as we think it is. I mean, can we really rely on institutions like the UN being present in a hundred years in a in a bad case climate scenario where there's conflict and there's war and there's huge instability? Can we assume things like the UN will really last? No, I don't think we can assume that for sure. I, I think that um, I think that kids these days, to use a hackneyed phrase, are not worried enough <laughs> about instability. I think we've lived through a long period of political stability, and people assume it will just go on. And I personally worry quite a lot about um, really big instability, much, much larger than what's happened the last few years, that could involve um, wars using biological agents or, or nuclear weapons, or could involve a real upending of the current um, uh, international order with new power coming from robotic weapons or, or new uses of AI or new uses of ways to manipulate people. So I think that the world might be pretty unstable. I think that the chance of actual extinction, might, I have no way to evaluate it, but intuitively I don't feel that's very likely. But I think the possibility of a, of a really sharp event or set of events that breaks the kind of smooth trajectory that we've been on for the last few decades, that feels to be pretty plausible. Um, I, I think that a lot of those things are a lot bigger than anything that geoengineering does one way or the other. So I, I kind of don't worry about geoengineering. I, I know some people worry that geoengineering is somehow a huge driver, but I think people are like kind of get fixated on it and can't put it into perspective. I, I actually don't think geoengineering is that important um, compared to these other things that will upend international affairs. And what do you think needs to be research? What should we be spending more resources on? We need to understand better what tools could be used for deployment, because one of the fundamental things that happens with solar geoengineering is people will sometimes argue, to me literally, I hear people say this, is from big environmental groups, for example, they say, well, broadly, we won't say it publicly, but we kind of agree this might happen someday. We don't really think there needs to be a lot of research because we think that more or less, if somebody wants to do it, they can do it. And I think that really misunderstands uh, how little we know in some ways and how research is kind of formed around some assumptions about what's possible, but we really need to actually do, do some work to investigate those assumptions. What I think you can do is think about what scientific things you would do, could be done, to reduce the uncertainty in predicting the consequences of some geoengineering intervention. And that's a big range of science, from laboratory science to some experiments. But the experiments are, I mean, you're, you're fundamentally improving our knowledge and our models. So experiments are not like little toy geoengineering where you test if it works or not. That maybe works, you know, if you want to build a thousand staplers, you can build one model of a stapler and test whether it works. But if you're trying to do something that's a kind of one-time intervention in the planet, the idea that you sort of do a closed form test is not um, meaningful in ways I understand. That's interesting. And I think we'll end on another highly speculative note. Um, I think one real takeaway I've had from this interview is that I think solar geoengineering is worth researching, but it clearly has to be accompanied by deep decarbonization. It clearly has to be just one tool in the toolbox. Uh, and so this is kind of a, you know, a tough last question, but what do you think the odds are that that deep decarbonization is actually going to happen? I think the chances of deep decarbonization are very high. And the only question is the timescale of how quickly it happens. I think that, that the history of the last, you know, sort of since the second war is that 
many of the big environmental problems, maybe most of the big environmental problems, maybe all of them except climate, <laughs> that have been really clearly identified, there's been real progress to resolving. It's all been slower than we wanted, and there's been huge harm done. But, you know, from, from toxic metals like lead to organic chlorine pesticides to the global ozone layer to air and water pollution, these are all things where humans have made really large progress in many cases. And not as much progress as I would like, but, but it's not as if we just did nothing. And essentially, in all those, I would say we basically are on a course, slower than I would want, to deal with them, to remove the pollutant and to, to, to resolve the problem. And I don't see a reason in the end why climate is different. I think it is harder because of the way it's global and because of the long time constant. But I think it's very doable. And I think we have the luck that it suddenly seems easier than maybe we thought to decarbonize in some ways because of like the sudden decreases in the cost of solar power that really are really quite fantastic. They're the biggest thing in the energy landscape in my career. career. So. I think it's very doable. The question is just how quickly it happens. Everybody tends to think of geometry sharing and decarbonization as being so coupled and all these if-then questions, at least for me, maybe I'm just like been too trained by it's kind of like a classical public policy decision theory. I think the decisions are largely uncoupled in the sense that decision to geometry sharing at some level balances a bunch of geopolitical considerations and it balances the benefits of doing it against the harms of doing it. Those benefits to harms are not that different in a world that's at 1.5 or a world that's at 2.5 or 3. They, the benefits certainly grow a little bit as it gets warmer, but it's not like, I mean, a lot of people sort of assume if we got to 1.5, well, we wouldn't need geoengineering. I think that's crazy. Well, it isn't a need question, but there might still be benefits at 1.5. You'd probably do less of it, but the benefits would be very real if they're there. Maybe there aren't benefits, but, but the point is it doesn't make that much difference whether you're at 1.5 or 2.5. That's interesting, and I suppose a, a slightly hopeful note for us to end on, maybe. Um, well, uh, Professor Keith, it's been really a pleasure, and it's been a very challenging and interesting conversation for me. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Thanks a lot. Great to have all these podcasts bubbling up. Cool. This has been episode four of Climate Futures. I'm your host, Annalisa Kingsbury-Lee. Today, we talked about the big idea, uh, the big technical solution, or one possible solution to climate change, solar geoengineering with Professor David Keith. We've also been talking about lawsuits on behalf of youth to fight climate change. We've been talking about space-based solar power, and we've even been talking about climate blockchain. And stay tuned for future episodes. We're gonna really delve into that climate governance question that Professor Keith talked about so much today. With that, thank you so much for listening to Climate Futures. 